There's a Wall Street uh, saying that goes something like this, that even a poor system can make money with good money management. I told people, you know, how many of you heard that? I think people raised it. Good. I said, forget it, forget it, because it's probably one of the most stupid things ever said about investing. And the reason it's stupid, because if that makes sense, like, think about think about going to Las Vegas and you're going to bet on roulette, okay? You got a, you got $10,000 you want to play roulette, right? Uh, and you go to you go to 100 mathematicians and tell them, like, what's my best betting strategy if I, if I were to bet a roulette, you know? And they should all give you the same answer. And that is take the whole 10,000 and put it on black or red and then wouldn't lose, walk away because the odds are against you. And the longer you play, the more, the greater the percentage you'll lose. Your highest percentage of winning is on just betting one time. It's still negative, but it'll be in the petty whether it's a single zero or double zero wheel. But, you know, if it's a single zero, it'll be four, you know, two and a half percent against you. Um, th that's your best, those are your best odds. At least you're close to 50 50. And the longer you play, the more certain. And if you play long enough, you're absolutely guaranteed by the laws of chance to, to lose. I mean, you have a 100% probability of losing if you play roulette long enough. So the point is, if you don't have an edge, the longer you trade, the more absolutely certain it becomes that you will go broke. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down with Jack Schwaber, co-founder and chief research officer of Fundseeder and author of multiple books on investing, including The Market Wizards, The New Market Wizards, Stock Market Wizards, and his most recent book, Unknown Market Wizards. We talked to Jack about what he's learned from interviewing great traders and investors and where their edge in the market comes from. We spent time talking about Jack's newest book, Unknown Market Wizards, The Best Traders You've Never Heard Of, and get his thoughts on the investing process and mindset of top investors. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Jack Schwager. Hi, Jack. Thanks for joining us. We've been looking forward to this. Um, throughout your career, you've interviewed some of the most successful investors and traders out there uh, for many of the books you've written, uh, The Market Wizards, The New Market Wizards, Stock Market Wizards, Hedge Fund Market Wizards, and The Unknown Market Wizards, uh, which is your latest one. And that's not even the full roster of um, books that you've uh, written and worked on throughout your career. I think probably we could do many, many podcasts covering all the lessons and valuable investing insights that can be found in these books. But hopefully today's conversation, we can bring to the surface some of the most important lessons that you've learned um, along the way in the interviewing and studying of the many great investors uh, in the market. Um, so, but before we get into, I think those important things, I did want to start um, maybe with the origin of the market wizards and also kind of get into a little bit of your process as to how you actually find and uncover these great investors. So to start, um, very simply, I just want to ask you, what gave you that original idea to write the market wizards back in the late eighties? So, uh, what gave me the idea is, uh, I knew some really great traders back in the eighties, which we can talk about how that came about, but I knew them and I thought the idea of, um, of doing a book interviewing, you know, great traders and what differentiates them from everybody else sounded like a 
first of all, he was somebody who was a way of, it was an excuse to depict the brains of these people with sort of for self-interest. And secondly, I thought it would make uh, an interesting uh, book and a fun project. So I had that idea for a while, but at the time I was a research director for, uh, made, you know, that I, I had been, had been a research director for, for a number of years and I was in the midst of it for major Wall Street houses at the time. I think it was, uh, uh, it was, I think it was Payne Weber at the time. Anyway, um, I didn't, you know, as, as a, as a research director, you don't really have all that, that much time. So I kept on, I put it off even though I had the idea because, you know, I had a full, more, more than full-time job as it was. Uh, what people don't know is, or don't realize is Martin Wizards was not my first book. My first book was a, was an analytical book called The Complete Guide to the Futures Markets. And that was written, I took a sabbatical to do that in 1984, which was five years before I ended up doing the first Martin Wizards book. And, um, that book was, it was a good, it was a good book, as a, yeah, but it's not like a mass audience book in the same way Morgan Wizards might be. Uh, that book then drew the attention of some other publisher uh, who invited me to lunch and pitched me on an idea that they wanted to do a whole series of books, one in each market. They wanted, they wanted like an editor in chief to, you know, the supervisor to do the whole project, you know. Uh, so I said, look, I, I done the analytical thing. It's a spoiler. It's a focused audience. It's a lot of work. I've done it, you know, and I want to want to do it again. I mean, I, and you do that type of thing, not to make money for sure, because you know, the, the more, probably more worthwhile the book, the smaller the audience, because it gets so more complicated. Anyway, the, um, so I had no interest in doing that, but plus it was just an immense amount of work. So I said, but I have this idea. I, I said, this more wizard's idea, which I was just sitting on. And they say, great, why don't you do that? And so that was the catalyst. That, that's what got me to say, okay, you know, I needed, I needed that little push to get it from an idea into actually going ahead and doing it. And it ended up being a nights and weekends type of thing. It ultimately ended up being worthwhile, obviously, but, uh, uh, you know, I had that reluctance because I knew it would be nights. Well, one of the things that sort of, as I was looking back at that first book, that sort of surprised me is you were able to get and maybe it's through these contacts. This is what I want to kind of um, try to get and understand is how did you, with Paul Tudor Jones, Drucken Miller, you had Michael Steinhardt in there, and this is the with, with the first Market Wizards book. What was your connection to them? How did you get them to agree to speak with you? Because yeah, so um, well, Drucken Miller was actually a new market news. Drucken Miller was the first two. They only came. They came like three years apart, so it's easy. Even I mix up something. I'm choosing. The first one who's in the second one. So, uh, the, the original, uh, interviews I did for the first one was a book. I knew Michael Marcus, so uh, directly cause he, he, and he ended up being chapter one of the first Mark Wizards book. Michael was, uh, Michael had the job. My first Wall Street job was vacated by Michael Marcus and he was leaving his analyst job to become, to become a trader you now and obviously became an enormously successful trader. Uh, as he was cleaning out his desk, I was coming in the first day. So we talked and we, you know, exchanged contact information or whatever. And he was in New York still for a few years before he went out to the West coast. And we used to get together every few weeks, you know, for lunch or whatever. And so I knew him personally. So he ended up, and he was very reluctant to do it. I knew it, it took a push from some other, from a mutual friend to, to get him to agree to do it. Cause he's a very very quiet, shy 
uh, you know, person. I don't think he, I'm sure he's never done any other interview or invisible at all other than in that book. Uh, but he was the first one. Now, Michael went on to go to Kamani School, which at the time and back in the eighties, uh, and the, uh, which is what his heyday, which was there and into the, you know, nineties, Kamani School was one of these first, it was a, one of the first commodity shops, which had in-house traders and, uh, Michael was their best trader ever, uh, made the most money for them as far as I know. But Michael, while he was there, hired Bruce Cutler, who, you know, became, you know, in itself became one of the great traders of all the recent, you know, recent generation. And he went on the and found Caxton, which was, you know, multi-billion dollar hedge fund that, you know, was successful over his entire career. But I knew Covenor because I knew Michael, you know, through, and I actually was, Michael hired me as an analyst to work at Commodity Sport, which I did for about a year um, before I went to be a research director back to Wall Street. But, uh, but I knew him because I, again, he was at Commodity Sport, I was at Commodity Sport. So I knew the two of them directly. Um, so many other people like Steinhardt, I don't remember Michael Stein and how I got him to agree. I don't remember if it was so much, so I just found somebody that knew him or I just approached him directly. Well, I know in some cases I do remember what people I didn't know directly, like Jim Rogers, who, you know, had been not that long. He, you know, he had left Soros Quantum Fund to be, be an independent investor. And I, in his case, I knew he taught a business course in Columbia. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I sent them my, my first book, which was an analytical book and say, look, Hey, here's, here's my, here's my sort of resume or whatever. I'm, I don't want to do this book on trading and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm not looking, you know, for, you know, to, to out anybody. I just want to get to the truths and uh, markets and, you know, what interview. So that was my, and he agreed. So, and then in some cases that people recommended other people and that's sort of, sort of came together, you know. Did anyone ever say no? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had some people say no, uh, more often than. More often than a hard no, was I being un unable to get through to somebody like mm -hmm. the most obvious, the most obvious interview I never did was George Soros. Um, and in this case, I never got to speak to Soros. I did interview Druckenmiller who actually ran his funds back in the years when the uh, Berlin Wall came down and, you know, the whole thing was being transformed. He spent, he spent, I don't know, a better part of a decade in Eastern Europe, Russia trying to convert those you know, do what he could to get those economies to a capitalistic, mm. uh, bent, uh, which is kind of ironic when you think of it, because in recent years, he's become a, a conservative, uh, uh, conservative devil or something like, you know, I mean, a good devil of the conservatives, but you know, he actually spent the good part of, you know, he, he devoted a key part of his career to trying to get countries to, you know, capitalistic, uh, capitalistic structure. So it's kind of ironic. I, I at least I find it ironic. Um, anyway, uh, I can never get through to him because his, uh, you know, he had layers of people who I, I proposed it and never, I never really got any weed. I never got it. I tried a couple of times. So more than hard nose, it was just not being able to get through somebody or, or in the case of Jim Simons and the Renaissance, which may well be the best performing fund of all time. Um, in this case, I did, I did speak to him. He declined. He declined one time and then I was doing other walking residents. And the second time he actually thought about it for a couple of weeks and, uh, and then said no. Uh, but it would have been a very hard interview, but it tends to be so secretive, you know, so. Mm -hmm. 
Well, for good reason, you know, for non-established reasons. Anyway, so, yeah, so there were some notes. But most of the, but in the first Mark of Wizards book, I pretty much got, I don't know if I asked, if I thought of asking Soros in that first Mark of Wizards book, but not, probably not. Um, but I don't, I think I just got about everybody I asked. I was just, like I say, some cases I knew, some cases I knew people knew, and a bit of luck, I guess, was in there too. Nice. So yeah, I'm sure it was, you know, nowadays you can, if you can find a person's email address, you can kind of ping them via email. It's, it's, you know, a lot more effort when you have to actually have to send somebody a letter or send somebody your book or make a phone call. So you had to do some heavy lifting there. Um, speaking of, you had mentioned, um, Renaissance and, the the, you know, perhaps the best performing track record of, of all time, but how do you, how do you think about track records when you're looking at these guys? I mean, what, what, so how long of a track record do you require? You know, do you verify it? What's your process for looking at a, a manager's or trader's track record? See, the process is essentially, uh, what, what I look for, I look for, I'd say one or two things. I look for either, you know, very, very strong return risk, you know, and I don't use the sharp ratio. We can talk about that later tangentially if you want, but, um, but everybody's the, the measures that I tend to use more like adjusted Sotino ratio and a uh, gain to pain ratio, people may not be that familiar with what, what those numbers, you know, what, they, what, what number means what. So I'll speak in terms of sharp ratio, but if the one was doing sharp ratio, then I'd be looking for people, not for sharp ratios of one, but like, you know, the sharp ratios of like kind of, you know, like nearly three, four, five, you know, but certainly above two, I'm looking for the more the exceptional return risk. And, uh, in turn, the other, the other thing I, I look for is people who took, taking a small amount of money. And even if they're, uh, even if their sharp ratio is not extreme, but if they've taken a small amount of money and made a fortune out of it, you know, that, you know, see that would qualify too. So for example, in the latest book, Unknown Market Wizards, uh, a lot of these people have sharp ratio, well, Actually, the sharp ratio understates the performance because, uh, I didn't want to go on that tangent, but the sharp ratio penalizes upside volatility or put it another mm -hmm. way, the sharp ratio penalizes large gains. And because so many of the traders I interviewed in this last book had many months of stupendously large gains, but, but on the other hand, not large losses and sharp ratio is an adjustment that the Sortino or gain to pain does. Um, but even in the sharp ratio, you know, so they might have sharp ratios of four or something like that, so right. high or three, but nothing compared to what their risk, you know, what their, uh, what the risk return risk would be using measures that don't penalize large gains. So, um, so that was one class. And then I had, uh, you know, uh, another trader where the, uh, where he had taken, I mean, he sent me an email and said, um, you know, you may, you know, you may not believe this, but I, I started with, you know, a few thousand dollars. They built it into 50 million or something like that. And when I got the email, I wasn't intending to do a, uh, to do a, another, you know, to do another book. So I said, look, you know, it sounds like a great story and, uh, I'm not planning to do another book, but I'll hold your email in case I do one. Well, I'll get back and if you can verify what, what you're, what you're telling me, then, you know, uh, sure. I'd be, be very interested. And so I did keep the email and it turned out for reasons I didn't fully anticipate, I did end up doing another book, side to one of my Mark Wizards, within about a year of that, that email. And I emailed them back and said, okay, you know, uh, 
I'm, you know, on the other side of the book, you know, if you can verify. And he literally sent me his, uh, you know, uh, his statements. And I think he was, a, I think they're Ameritrade, which I am familiar with. So, um, and, and, you know, because I had Ameritrade accounts, one similarly. I mean, anyway, he sent me all his monthly statements from after 2006. And so, you know, so I was, because otherwise it's a pretty unbelievable story. He literally took like something like 5,000 turned into 50 million, you know, so. And by the way, in the year and a half or two years since I've done that book, he's quintupled it. So, um, you know, I mean, it's a, it's something you, you just really wouldn't believe unless you really saw, you know, unless you, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, there's no way this could be true. No way this could be true. But that's what exactly I was looking for. I was looking for people who were phenomenal and nobody knows they exist. You know, they're just there. And then this is a guy sort of out of college, never got a job, started trading and and this ridiculous goal of making a million dollars in the first year, we started out flying. And he, he kind of, I mean, maybe it wasn't a year, maybe it was 14 months, you know, he made his first million, but you know, it went on from there. So it's one of those stories that is pretty amazing. But I looked for that. I looked for the, you know, that taking a small amount, turning fortunate or, or now the guys who had this immense return risk, those credible return risk numbers in their case, they tended to be more conservative. They didn't compound it like he did. Um, and, uh, in their case, they would, uh, you know, they would keep the count at a million to 2 million once they got to that level and just keep pull money out of invest in real estate or whatever. So it, so they may end up, you know, making, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 billion, even though it's the nominal return risk, you know, instead of like 50 or hundred, but the return risk is enormous. So one of those two. And yes, I, I either verify, you know, typically like in this book, I verify everything, but in the early books, I remember it's something, a lot of times it's not possible. In some cases you can't verify because it's the prop traders, but then you just, you know, speak to people like Michael Marcus. I mean, the commodity school, we're not, I would not get his, could not get his records or company's records from commodity school, but I knew, first of all, I was, I worked there, but yeah, I kind of knew that, that they, that they had, that they were extraordinarily successful and didn't have no reason to doubt the numbers. And, and so forth. So, you know, it, it's one of those two cases. That was one of the things that truly blew me away about rereading the, when I was reading the rereading the books over the weekend is, you know, in the long only world we operate in, you know, a 15, 20% annual return is an amazing return. I mean, but these people were all many, many multiples of that. I mean, these, these were returns that you would consider almost unbelievable if you didn't verify them. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, I think some of that covenant, when I interviewed him, I, I forget exactly it was 88% a year for 10 years, like, you know, average wow. compound of Michael was probably triple. Michael was a triple digits or more. Paul Tudor Jones was actually, I had to find, I had to, he gave me a grammatical problem because he had, he had four years of, of over a hundred percent in the fifth year, he was like 99.4 or something <laughs> like that. Like, I couldn't honestly be true and say, you know, his first five years were all triple digits. I forget exactly how I phrase that sentence, you know, but it was a little bit problematic how to get the message across. Well, still be totally, you know, accurate. Uh, but yeah, they, but they can't keep those type of returns up. So, um, you know, Covener, I mean, went on to manage tens of billions ultimately through tax and, uh, you know, you can't be doing 88% a year and it just, uh, and, and also there's some sort of reversion to the mean involved too. I mean, those type of returns are just not, you just can't keep up those type of numbers. I mean, if you, if you did, you don't, you don't need. You know, the United States economy, you know, after a certain number. 
Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, even if you back off significantly, you got when you're talking about triple, you know, triple digit returns or eighty percent returns. I mean, yeah, if you if you come down to twenty percent, you're still you still got phenomenal work. When ninety nine percent is your bad year, you're doing pretty well. Um, um, I wonder before we talk about some of the attributes that led to these traders being so successful, I want to first take a step back and ask you about interviewing because that that's something we're trying to refine our own process here doing interviews. And I know you did a lot for the book and. You know, one of the things we always do when we when we interview people on the podcast is we'll send them sort of an outline of the interview in advance. And you were actually the first guest we had that did not want that. And I think that probably says something about what you think a good interview is. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think a good interview is. Yeah, and, and you're not the first uh, people, the interviewers to, to offer me that. I said, Leo, thanks, but no thanks. And, it, and the reason I personally do that, uh, it's also because I've often been on the opposite side, I've been on your side, obviously, through the books. And I, you know, I don't tell people what, what I'm going to ask, although, but from talking from this framework, the reason I, I don't want to know the, the questions is because I want it to be spontaneous. I don't want it, even if I don't prepare for it, if I know what's coming, it, there's too much of a chance of a canned answer or it, uh, it takes some, you know, it takes a spontaneity on it, takes a, takes some of the interest out of it. So I think you get a better interview if, if people don't know what's, what's, what the questions could be. Now, as far as. What I do for interviewing, when I, when I did the first Morgan Wizard book, I prepare, I still kept the, I might even have the point here. Uh, I did hold on to it. So, not that I've used it, but I've got, there it is. Um, so we'll stack of oh, yeah. index cards with questions on it. And so I came to prepare with that question, but I, I quickly learned that uh, the way to do the interview was was not to come, not to have eight questions and ask questions. It was, well, you have, you know, your first question or two, maybe, but um, just to have a conversation. So that's a really important thing is to, is to make it a conversation and not to make, make it, you know, prepare question and answer uh, type of uh, situation because then it becomes very boring. And uh, tied in with that, it's really important to, Listen to what the person's answers are because sometimes and often the best parts of an interview are not something you plan to ask, but somebody said something and that led to another set of questions and that takes you off of a tangent that you didn't anticipate and that often ends up being the best, best material. So uh, it's very important to, uh, to, to you know, like have that conversational style where you're listening and going off what the person said rather than focusing on what your prepared questions are. Now, I still carry that stack of index cards around uh, from interview to interview. What I would normally do, though, is I add the full interview, whether it was over a one-day period or multi-day period. At the end, I would just flip through the questions and see, did I miss anything, you know? Because uh, those are questions I always want to ask everybody. And that often, often I basically hit everything anyway. Uh, so but th that's my advice about interviews is, is keep it as spontaneous as possible as unprepared as possible and make it a conversation, no, you know, not, and the worst, the worst type of, I don't like reading question and answer formats myself, even though I write that, you know, the bulk of each chapter is a question and answer format. I actually don't like articles that are question and answer format Tend to not read them. Uh, but the worst, when I do read it, the worst ones are where you could just, you could almost, or I've experienced it myself when I get an interview. And no matter what I say, there's another question. And you know that they know right. what you just answered. 
Yeah. It's just, you can hear it. You can hear them taking off their, their portion. Those are the worst interviews. And they need them. What's interesting is that that is really the best interview is a conversation, but it's also probably the, the hardest interview to do. And it, and it takes, that's what takes the most work at. Like what you're talking about is sort of the bad interview is kind of the easiest one to do. You know, you just read the question and then you don't pay attention to the answer and you move on to the next thing. And, you know, that's easy to do, but it doesn't, you know, a lot of times the, the conversational interviews are, are clearly the better interviews. It's just the hardest thing when you're doing this, it's the hardest thing to get right. Focus. Yeah. And the, 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 only, the most difficult part in that, that situation is somebody gives you an answer and with the answer, they give you a couple of things that you want to go, you want to pursue. So, uh, you have to, you know, you go with one and you don't want to forget the other. You know, sometimes I'll try to check down to order two just on the pad, just to remind me that I want to get to that. So, uh, but yeah, you have to focus when you do it that way, you have to focus on, on, on what's going on. I want to switch gears here quick and just talk about the actual lessons we can learn from all the market wizards in the book. Uh, I re I reread the, uh, little book of market wizards over the weekend. And, you know, that did a really good job of kind of breaking down all the, all the major lessons. But before we get into some of those individually, I want to just ask you first at a high level. I mean, what do you think are the most important things your investors can learn from the market wizards? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, you know, as you know, in each book at the end of, at the end of each book, well, you can mention a little book of market wizards. There are the 20 of the really core ones that, that come up in every book, I think, and, uh, and expound upon them, you know, says, says, says general principles. Uh, but in every, each of those market wizards book, there's with the exception of the first market wizards, I think I had only about nine or 10 lessons at the end, but in subsequent books, those built that that listen list are much longer and ultimately yeah, in each book, there are probably around 40 or 50. So there's, there's, uh, you know, and if you can, I believe you took a, you know, a lot of them will, will overlap, but there's probably close to a hundred if you took all the books and took all the non-overlapping things, but there are certain ones which are really fundamental. I mean, if you don't have those, you don't have, you can't have success. And, uh, so some of those are, let's start with the idea of finding the right approach. Most people. Most people are always looking for somebody to give it to them on a silver platter. Yeah. Wow. No, this is how you trade. You know, you look for this crossover movie average and the MACD line to go here and it's got to be a Tuesday or whatever. I don't know. You get a list of rules. They just like a cookbook recipe. They want to, they don't want to, they don't want to experiment cooking in a row. They want a recipe they can follow step by step and do exactly that and they'll become a millionaire and I, or a billionaire or whatever. And it doesn't work that way. That's number one. But even if it, but and even if it did work that way, um, most people wouldn't follow it because they 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 would be you know they wouldn't they they wouldn't have the confidence in the person who devised it. But in most cases, it really doesn't. For the most part, it really doesn't work. So when people are successful, one trader, I think it's Randy McKay, the first market wizards book said, um, every trader, every successful trader I, I've known. Uh, and this is a guy who worked on the, uh, he, he was originally a currency trader in the pits and then came up you know, off the floors and became, you know, traded from the desk. Uh, but he said, every successful trader that I've ever known found a methodology that fit their personality. And that was a good quote. And once I was aware of that, I kind of said, Hey, yeah, that's probably true of everybody in this book. And, and once I was aware of that, it was true of everybody else I had ever been interviewed. You could see that their approaches kind of fit fit their personality. Uh, sort of a good example for a good example, uh, like in the most recent book, Jason Shapiro, who is a contrary type of trader. Now, Jason, by his own admission, is argumentative, and he is, he just is. And 
he says, and by, by his own, the way it is paraphrasing his own words, he says, if I go to a cocktail party and most people are liberal, you know, I will, I will take the conservative side. And if most people are conservative, he'll take the liberal side. He just, he just wants to argue the other side. And his basic principle is no one side is ever fully correct. And there's always self-truth on the other side that he'll always want to be in. And that's his natural instinct. So, uh, so what does he become as a trader? He becomes a contrary trader. Now, that doesn't mean he sells every rally and buys every break, uh, but he only sells after, you know, rallies and, uh, everybody's kind of very bullish and which explains how he judges and after, uh, after breaks when everybody's very negative. Now he has ways of determining when the timing is right. And that's critical because, you know, rallies can go on forever and breaks can go on forever, you know? So you have to have a way of deciding the timing and very important. You have to decide when you're wrong. So he, he has those two elements there, but his basic approach is contrary because that's his, that's his personality and that works for him. Um, you've got, uh, you know, you got a trader, you got somebody like, uh, Ed Thorpe, who's a, who's a quant, quant, you know, sort of brilliant mathematician and originally was going for speech physics, PhD, but just a real, you know, really brilliant quant and all his strategies always were mathematically finding, finding inefficiencies in the markets before anybody else did. So he was, I mean, he developed the equivalent of the Black-Scholes model before Black-Scholes publishes and it became the way pricing options. But for years he was printing money because he was like probably the only person in the world who mathematically knew how to price options. Uh, then he, then when, you know, that became more popular and well known, he went on to, um, he invented the credible arm strategy and, uh, and also market neutral strategies, you know, so in all those cases, they're all quant oriented cat fits. So what I'm getting at is successful traders find an approach that, that fits their, their view. Or Kovner, we talked about his view is it's the word, it's about a world of, of, of economies and how they all interrelate. So his whole approach is about knowing intricately the politics, political economies, the economics of every country, of all major countries, um, and how it all works together and having this macro picture of a whole world economy plus individual key economies and how it will and having his idea of where the markets will go with general broad trends based on that. And he, he was a history major back, but that's, that's his, his, it fits with the way he sees and believes the world works. So everybody's who's successful, find some approach that fits with the personality, which is why you can't get, um, why you can't get a you know, successful approach by just trying to copy somebody else. Cause you know, the person you're copying, there's no reason in the world why their approach should have anything to do with what would be natural for you. So that's what I say. So first thing is you have to discover what trading methodology works for you. What, you know, what fits your personality? What are you comfortable with? And it's interesting because we, we see the same thing in like long only that, you know, we, we do this long-term investing and, you know, we use value or we'll use momentum. And, you know, a lot of times clients will ask us, you know, well, what's the best fit for me? And, you know, the answer is whatever you believe in more, um, you know, it's gotta be a fit for your personality style. You know, it's, we may be able to throw you numbers and sharp ratios and all that about value versus momentum, but at the end of the day, it's the one you're going to stick with. That's the one that's, you know, that's best for you. So I think it works no matter what type of investing you're doing. I mean, it's, it's essential. And you talk about value. I mean, that's a perfect example. So value investing, you really have to have a long-term, um, uh, you know, mentality and you have to be willing to ride through the, the, the odd thing about that, not the odd thing, but it's true of any most fundamental approaches or many fundamental approaches is that 
you're putting this risk management dilemma because if nothing changes and your analysis about value is correct, then the more the market goes against you, the better of assuming again, important proviso here, assuming nothing has changed uh, and assuming your analysis is correct. Uh, if nothing is changing, your analysis is correct. And the more the market goes against you, the better the trade becomes. And it's kind of that sort of fight, but it's risk management about not letting your losses run itself. So that's a difficult thing, but you have to have uh, the mentality of being willing to stay with that and ultimately come to the other side, because if, if you, if you can take that type of a situation, then value, value investing, no matter what the numbers are, it will work for you. Uh, because there are years like 1999 as a as you all know, you know, classic example. I mean, you had all these stocks, which ultimately went to, became worthless or, or lost 90% plus of their value in 99 and the beginning 2000, they were going up tenfold. In the meantime, value stocks were going down. So, and somebody like Buffett, like, like Buffett, but I believe it would have had it down here in 99. Um, so if you believe in value, if you believe in value, you're going to go through these periods where it seems horrible. And if you can't do that, then it's wrong. It's not the right method for you, no matter how good the methodology. Be. Another thing I want to ask you about, which I think also applies to long-term investors, you know, in addition to the traders you mentioned in your book is this idea that, you know, you can have a portfolio management process. You can have a style that fits your personality. You can have all these things, but none of it matters if you don't have an edge. So can you talk about the importance of an edge? Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, and that's one of the important things I know is, yeah, you get, and that's what some people miss. Uh, there's, when I get thoughts, I, I, and when I talk about this, what's one of the things I usually, pre, I mean, I have a lot of points, but, and I can't get to all of them. I, I need actually three hours of talking to get <laughs> to all the points I want to hit. But, um, but it, 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 very often I will mention that, that exact thing about the edge. And I say, there's a Wall Street uh, say that goes something like this, that even a poor system can make money with good money management. I told people, you know, how many of you heard that? I think people raised Good. I said, forget it, forget it, because it's probably one of the most stupid things ever said about investing. And the reason it's stupid, because if that makes sense, like, think about, think about going to Las Vegas and you're going to bet on roulette. Okay. And you got to, you got $10,000. You want to play roulette, right? Uh, and you go to, you go to hundred mathematicians and tell them, like, what's my best betting strategy if I, if I bet a better roulette, you know? And they should all give you the same answer. And that is take the whole 10,000 and put it on black or red and then wouldn't lose, walk away because the odds are against you. And the longer you play it, the more, the greater the percentage you'll lose. Your highest percentage of winning is on just betting one time. It's still negative, but it'll be in the betting room, whether it's a single zero or double zero wheel, but you know, if it's a single zero, it'll be four, you know, two and a half percent against you. Um, th that's your best, those are your best odds. At least you're close to 50, 50. And the longer you play, the more certain, and if you play long enough, you're absolutely guaranteed by the laws of chance to, to lose. I mean, this, you have a hundred percent probability of losing if you play roulette long enough. So the point is, if you don't have an edge, the longer you trade, the more absolutely certain it becomes that you will go broke. I mean, totally lose everything. So that is like, yeah, you have to have an edge. And if you don't know what your edge is, you obviously don't have one. So, uh, you have to have an edge and the edge could be a lot of different things. It, it could be a million different things, uh, but it has to be there. I have to know. How common was it for the edges to deteriorate over time and for the traders to have to pivot and adjust their strategies to make them continue to work? Oh, uh, well, you know, people may have an edge in a certain way, but then the markets change 
and and they have to change and you have to change with it. So, um, so edges aren't constant. The, the edge sometimes it, sometimes an edge can be can be a constant, like in a way that somebody has a really good instinct for markets and uh, you know the way they look at charts and the way they interpret the way the market reacts to whatever. They just have these natural the, 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 natural traders, and that edge may stay there even if markets change in a way. But sometimes the edge is dependent upon the nature of the market. Uh, so um, I think that there was one, there was only one systematic trader in this last, was it, you know, it was well, one kind of really, everybody was uh, uh, was discretionary, but one guy was purely systematic. But in this case, what was interesting was that he started out with an approach and it had an edge and you know, he was kind of making money, you know, almost every, you know, not every month, but he was making money every year and, and doing well. And then all of a sudden, you know, after about five years of doing this, well, he hits like these month after month, he starts losing money. And, uh, kind of says himself that it must be because the markets are becoming faster. And he was trading at the end of the day. He now has to anticipate it to change the system and everything else. And it became, it became profitable again. He did, and a couple of times in his career, he had to change the system like that. Well, What's interesting is he's, his background was, uh, as a, came out in software development business. So, uh, so he kind of built his own software and everything. So he can go, he has like every, he's built hundreds of systems over the years and work and sometimes multiple, but everything that he's ever traded, he can bring it up on his computer and show what it did to the point where he traded it, what it did afterwards. I, cause I asked him that question, Hey, you know, out of curiosity, this was back in 2004, we switched system. What would have happened if, uh, if you continue trading that system that works so well, and he brings it up and it's like, this is the most incredible chart. It's the equity chart, right? So the equity chart is, it kind of goes up like, like a, like a mountain that goes up and then it kind of peaks and then it goes down and it never stopped going down until, you know, until the current time. So for the first five years he was trading it, it went up and, you know, then it started going down for a few months, a few months slowly, he was still trading and then he abandoned it. But the point is if he hadn't switched, if he hadn't switched his, his systems, he, he would have lost everything. And, uh, it was sort of amazing how badly the system did after it stopped working. So, uh, so that edge, it has a perfect example of where there's an edge and it's, and it goes away completely. Uh, but like I say, in some cases, over like, um, we talked about Thorpe in Thorpe, you know, he started walking options, that edge went away and he went to, uh, uh, you know, market neutral, that edge one way, then it went for the blog. So he had to keep on developing new strategies as, as the things he developed, more people started doing them than the edge one. But that's gotta be one of the hardest things I would think is if you had something that's been working for you for a really long time, knowing when to cut, you know, when to end it, you know, knowing when to pivot to some other strategy. I mean, that's something I couldn't do. And I think that's probably something that di differentiates these great traders from the rest of us. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, you know, cause you have to. And it's always, how do you know, especially for systematic traders, I uh, had even worse with trend following systematic traders, because by its nature, if, you, if you're going to allow trends to work, you have to take while you're going to, you know, you're going to have drawdowns, mm -hmm. large drawdowns as in intrinsic to that approach. Uh, and how do you differentiate when a drawdown is like the system's not working anymore to where, to where it's just a normal correction. So it's a difficult thing. And I, for one point in my career, uh, I had switched to systematic trading and trend oriented trading because I wanted to take the motion out of trading. And I eventually discovered that actually I couldn't, I wasn't comfortable with doing it. 
because actually it was more because you have to kind of abandon your own, your own controls to let the system do it. And you have to be willing to ride these drawdowns without, without interfering. And I found that much more difficult than just having, being able to say, making this fresh decision, and I'm going to risk this much. I'm getting out if it goes there. And I know what my worst case loss is. And I found oddly enough that, that, that type of discretionary trading took far less emotional toll than did systematic trade for me at least. So, and, and the irony is like, I did it because I thought it would be less emotional and it ended up being more emotional. It, it, it's interesting how all these principles relate to each other. So we kind of got back to what we talked about originally, which is your, this trading style didn't fit your personality. So, you know, you couldn't pursue it. it it's just amazing that all these kind of work together. Another one I want to ask you about is, you know, a lot of people read these books and think, wow, look at this smooth ride these guys had turning, you know, $5,000 into 50 million or something like that. But, you know, one of the common things I saw throughout a lot of these chapters was either significant failure or blowups or something like that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how important having failures early in their careers were to these guys being so successful. So more often than not, people fail in the beginning than succeed. You have the occasional story where where, you know, people like start off and, and his latest book, probably it is more, more people percentage wise that start off successfully and continued that is typical. But if you take all the Martyr Wizards books together, I'd say for sure, um, the majority of times people have early failures rather than early success. And so there's a couple of lessons in there. One is that just because you fail in the early years doesn't mean that you're doomed to failure because a lot of the most successful people actually, in fact, Michael Marcus, who I said before, you know, was the first chapter, the first book, that, that chapter is fascinating to me, at least so far as how many times he grew up and did give up. So, so part of it is that that's, that happens even the greatest trade people become great traders. And the second part of it is that part of becoming a great trader in most, many cases is the ability to have enough self-confidence and resilience to be able to take that complete failure and learn from it, figure out what you're doing wrong, change, persevere and come back again and, you know, get knocked down and come back again. And that, that perseverance, um, is something that, that is an element of many of these people's success, because if take Michael, if he had given up on any of those times, he completely failed and they were terrible failures. Um, you know, he would never, nobody, he wouldn't have, yeah, he wouldn't have gone on to make a hundred million. Dollars, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's part of it. The, uh, it's common and, uh, the ability to, to come to, to get past that is, is an element of, of great traders. Now it doesn't mean of course that you everybody fails is going to become successful. I mean, that's another story, but it is certainly true that a lot of super successful people were early failures. But they learn from the and, and that's another point that relates really well to long-term investors because you know a lot of value investors for instance had a very long period in, in the past decade where they failed and you know they've been rewarded for kind of sticking with the strategy you know in, in more recent years but it, no matter what you do there's there's going to be these periods of failures you know you might not blow up completely as more of a long-term investor but you're still going to have these failures and you're still going to have to overcome them and persevere through them i want to ask you about two other uh points from from the little book uh that were kind of some of the principles you talked about and a couple of these are things that might seem to contradict themselves on the surface, but they don't really. And it, and it becomes sort of a balance between, you know, that these traders are able to strike that like a lot of the, or the rest of us may not be able to. And, and one is, you know, one of the things you talked about a lot in that book was patience and, and their ability to stay the course and to be really patient. 
And then on the, on the other side, you talked about their ability to cut losses and get out when things were going against them. And so that, that back and forth seems to be a real key to being a good trader. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and there's no contradiction between those two. So let's take, uh, let's take patience first. Uh, patience has two elements to it. It's, um, it's patience to wait for the right, you know, write the right pitch, so to speak. You know, uh, uh, I had this, uh, Greenblatt, Joel Greenblatt, who I interviewed one of my Coffin Capital, I interviewed one of the books. Oh, I think he quotes Buffett on this. He says, there's no cold strikes in trading. You know, you don't, it's not like you have three chances in your round. You can look as many pitches as you want. So, you know, the point is to wait for the right pitch. And that's a lot of people have difficulty with that. And, and, uh, uh, in, in his latest book, like I think somebody like Adam Sell, and I asked him what, what, the, you know, who worked in the prop shop and saw a lot of traders, I asked him what, what kind of differentiates the losing traders. And he said, a lot of losing traders just, uh, they try to make money every month, which sounds ironic because that sounds like a good thing. Hey, let's try to make money every month. That's a good, that seems like a good objective. The trouble with that is there could be months, whatever your approach is, there could be months when the market's not giving you any opportunity. And if you're trying to press to make money where there's no opportunity, what you're getting up is losing. And, and that's come up, that comes up in a number of interviews. So the, it takes a lot of discipline to not trade when there isn't an opportunity. That's, that's, that's an important element to patience. And the other side of, uh, of, of patience is, is when you do have a good trade, not to jump the gun too quickly to take profits. So, um, you know, I go by, I think we'll just quote it probably at least once in the market wizard series, but this, uh, the quote from, uh, from reminiscence of a stock operator, which, uh, is based on, on Jesse Livermore, which was written by Jesse Livermore's based fund, but he has a line in there where he says, uh, it was never, it was never my, my thinking that made the money. It was my sitting, got that, my sitting. And what he's basically saying, Hey, I wasn't a genius, but when I was right, I was able to stay and stay, stay. And so that's another element of the patient. That's hard for people to do because it goes counter to human nature. Because human nature, you make a profit. Hey, if you take it, it's going to feel good. Market can't take it away from you. That's really important to people, right? The market can't take it away from you. So. Uh, so very few people were able to really realize, uh, anything remotely close to the full, you know, the full potential of a trade that's really good. And, uh, and so that's another area where patience comes in. Uh, so those, so that's what, so that's patience important entry. It's important to stay the trade. Well, now on the, on the risk management side, being able to get out quickly, that's a different element. So getting out quickly means that if, if. Uh, the market doesn't do what you think it should do, or it's just acting wrong. Whatever the approach is, or if you, let's say your approach is chart oriented and the market chart develops in a way where if you were not in the position, you would say, and let's say you're wrong, you would say, Hey, I don't, I'm going to sell this thing. You know, so I just give you, that's one way of thinking of one example. Um, but if the market or the market has some. If you're long, the market has some really bullish news and it goes up, ends up lower for the day. We're just doing, there's certain things that the market's doing that just seem like it's wrong for what your position is. Then the ability, then, you know, you want to get out. I mean, so that's the ability to be able to get out quickly and change your mind. If the facts change, that's, that's not only unknown risk management. That's, that's probably really more of an illustration of flexibility, which is another one of the major principles. So again, there's no, 
you can be patient as you want, but if facts change, you want to be able to, to get out quickly. And, uh, and also patience doesn't mean staying with a position that's not working because there you risk management, you know, the rules should override. So you should have a way of saying, Hey, I'm risking so much on this trade and not more. And if the market violates that, you need to get out. So, uh, where, so, so patience doesn't mean staying with that type of position, but what it does mean is if the market is going your way and everything is, is still fine, you know, be careful about taking the profit too quickly, you know, so. That's probably, if I criticize myself uh, for my investing career, that's probably been my biggest issue is an unwillingness to take losses. You know, I've, I've rode too many positions down, you know, way longer than I should have. In the last book, Peter Brandt has a great, great kind of way of looking at that type of situation. He says he's learned to avoid popcorn trades. And I asked him, well, what's a popcorn trade? So it's a, it's a trade that pops up in your favor that comes all over down. <laughs> you know, popcorn, mm -hmm. coming down. So that's a good way that I like that kind of visual. And it's a good way of thinking. You don't want to have a popcorn trade. If Martin goes in your favor, then at worst case, you don't want to lose it. Right? So, yeah. So sometimes it'll come all the way down and it'll go back up again. It happens all the time. But a lot of times it just keeps on going. And I found, you know, I find that that type of rule, you know, is, is a group to follow. And that goes to speak to about, you know, letting a market go against you too long. So anyway, yeah. Well, uh, you, no, no, you, you mentioned position sizing and that's the other area of the book that I noticed there's this push and pull, which is on one hand you said, all right, you know, investors, good traders limit the, their risk. They don't bet too much, you know, in, in, in most cases. But then there's other cases where they have really high conviction. And, you know, there's some examples in the book of people betting a huge portion of their portfolio on one trade when they had high conviction and doing really well. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about that balance between, you know, limiting the risk on position sizing, but also being able to go all in or be go aggressively in when they see a certain uh, set of circumstances dictate that. Yeah. So first, let me say that this is something where there's a matter of expertise involved. So this principle about the idea of keeping a business small in general and a small fraction of your portfolio size is good advice in general to sort of maintain, you know, to keep you from getting knocked out of the game. And that's, that's a good general principle. There are, the exception is, as you say, there are times where you want to step on the accelerator and take a much larger position. Now that doesn't apply to an ordinary trader, generally speaking, because just like you can look at somebody skiing down a 60 degree slope. Okay. And they're doing it. They do it successfully. That doesn't mean that if you're kind of an amateur skier, you should try that because you'd get killed. Uh, so just because it can be done and, you know, be done with expertise and doesn't mean that everybody should try it. So you have to have a certain level of skill and confidence to be able to do that. But for you know, people who do have that skill and confidence, uh, that becomes an essential point if they're making a lot of money. So somebody like Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, who over his career, or I guess about 30 years, the average close to like 30 years of 30%, you know, average, I mean, somebody like close to it. Anyway, so part of getting a 30%, that doesn't mean that he made 30% plus in every year. He has some years where he has much higher returns and some years where he might've been breaking where he's like losing, but he, he had those years where he had trades that he felt really confident of much larger positions and, um, he, he, uh, he quotes George Soros that does, you have to know what to be a pig. And he talks about his own experience where 
uh, when he was working, when he was first, when he first went to work for George Soros and, uh, he had this idea of, this is back in the DMARC, pre-Euro days, you know, we call it DMARC. And he was, uh, he was very bullish on a DMARC. So he goes in and, uh, the Soros's office and gives him pictures of on its trade that, and then Soros said, so, uh, uh, well, how, how much of the position do you have on? He said a billion dollars. And Soros says dismissively, well, they had a position. And his point was, if you're that confident about him, why is it larger? And, uh, you kind of learn from that, uh, that when you're super, there's, these things don't happen all the time. They happen once in a while where there's just, whatever the traders approach is, there's just super high conviction and a trade could be put on a report. What's important here is not only can you do a large trade, but you can define a reasonable risk point on that trade. In other words, the market should go, which should go right now, uh, or it should not go past this level. And so you, you see the potential for market making a huge move in one direction, but it should not go much in the other direction. So your risk is never commensurate with potential profit. And, and that's part of the trade. It's rare. It's everything lines up for your trade and you can put it on that and know where to get out at a point that is going to have risk that's much smaller than the potential you see in the trade. But that's what one thing that differentiates great traders from everybody else is that in those isolated situations, they, they, they put on these long trades and you have that, you know, no walker wizards, you, you've got traders in there that have like literally, you know, 50% plus months. Um, and it's, you know, it, that's part of it. That's part of their, they, they may have lots of months where they make nothing, but just every now and then they hit one of these log counts. But it's because everything lines up and they take a large position and they can do it with defined risk. And I know it's very different, but you know, it kind of reminds me of, of Buffett and Apple. I mean, you know, he put $30 billion to work in Apple in 2016, or roughly around this time frame, you know, and now it's like a, you know, $130, $140 uh, billion dollar position you know, making up about 20% of the overall value of Berkshire. So it's, you know, these concentrated trades, when they work, they can do really well. I wanted to ask you about, um, your new book and the advantages that a solo trader might have sort of in the market. So when you looked at these guys, I mean, what were their, is it because they're small and, you know, they're not really on the radar. So their advantage is, you know, they don't maybe manage a lot of assets, so they don't have asset bloat. I mean, what, what, adva what advantages do these guys have in the market? Well, in terms of size, they have the same advantage that, that virtually why every, you know, that every small trade, although many, some cases they're no longer small, but, um, the, the advantage of a small trader is they can go in and out of the markets and without moving to more, unless they're trading micro caps mm -hmm. or something like that, where any order can move the market, I suppose. Uh, but for the most part, you know, Small traders can go in and out without, uh, you know, affecting the market, which once you get very large, that's difficult to do because your own actions actually influence the market. And, uh, most people, most people think big traders have an advantage, but it's actually harder in that sense, because the, you, you can't, you can't get in and out without, you know, causing your own wave, so to speak. And so that's an advantage I have, but that's an advantage that every small trader you know, I, like I said at the beginning, I think we could probably, and like you said, we could probably talk for hours and hours about all of the, the qualities of these traders and the things that you've learned and 
And I feel like we're kind of doing it a little bit of an injustice, um, sort of just moving on to the next set of questions. Um, but that's why hopefully Jack, you'll, you'll come on with us again and, and, uh, continue to educate us and our audience. But I want to just get your opinion on a few other things in the market today. Um, and just see, you know, how you think about these things and whether or not you agree with some of this or just what your overall opinion is. So in terms of, um, you know, there's a lot more quantitative tools and data out there that investors have available to them. So do you think it's harder today to have an edge in the market than maybe it was um, 20 years ago? Obviously you found a lot of these, you know, undiscovered investors um, it, for the book. And also with your, with your company, I know you look for managers um, and traders that have these track records, but just generally when you look out, you know, on the horizon of traders out there, are there less traders today that have an edge in the market than say 10 or 20 years ago? Uh, you know, that would have been, that was my assumption before I did unknown market wizards. I kind of assumed, well, you know, people like Marcus and Cover, Walter Jones, all that. When they, the, the years where they were making those phenomenal returns, couple of things were true. Well, first of all, it, the, you had these immense commodity trends. I mean, those were the infl big inflationary years. You had stuff like sugar that went from two cents to 64 cents. I mean, we're talking about just tremendous price runs. Oh, so those type of giant moves in the leasing commodities, uh, you know, that, uh, and they, not only were they, not only were they large, but they were relatively smooth. I mean, didn't go straight up, but compared to today where things had to be a lot choppier. Uh, and the other big thing, the difference was that that was pre, you know, I would say pre-computer. I mean, you had computers back, uh, you had, you had, you had compute, well, you're dealing mainly the, the mainframe type world with not much computing power, even for the mainframes back in when those early traders that the ones I heard, the, the, their heyday was late sixties, seventies into the early eighties, but you know, that you didn't have PCs come become popular, you know, become widespread until mid eighties, I guess, or something like that. So it's certainly pre PC, uh, it's, you know, there were computers out there, but they had much more limited uh, computing power. The data was nothing remotely approaching to today. Quants were, I mean, I'm sure there must've been some quants in the market, like they were like a head Philip, for example, but they were isolated, you know, where today or in the past decade or two, you could have shops that have like a hundred quants working for them, you know, and that type of thing. So given all of that, uh, you would think that the, it's much harder to get an edge because look at that immense computer power and, uh, quant, quant intellectual power to speak thrown at the market. It's the competition is much, much tougher. So that was my, that was my personal assumption. I said, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to find records like I did in the first market was a but they could still find people who were outperformed. And to my surprise, I, some of the records I found in, in this latest book were as good, if not better than any I'd ever found. So ironically, it's still possible, at least for people who are not of the normal size, you know, people in reasonable, you know, more like typical trader size or someone larger than that, uh, apparently it's still possible to, to do phenomenally well. So much like my own, uh, assumptions, which were similar to yours, um, it seems that it's still, it hasn't changed that the markets have changed dramatically, but somehow 
that potential for some people to perform enormously well and to, to tremendously help perform is still there. And it surprised me. And uh, I don't know if I can entirely explain why that's the case, <laughs> but I think it's, it's just by empirically, I would say, I certainly didn't interview all the great trainers out there. It was just a, just a sampling and it's probably just the tip of the iceberg. So apparently there's, there's still a ton of trainers out there that are doing phenomenally well, despite these changes that we've talked about. I mean, one of the arguments you could potentially make, and this is one of the things I wanted to get your opinion on, but I'm going to kind of bring it in sort of in another area first is, you know, maybe this influx of new retail traders into the Robin hoods of the world, um, that are really just, you know, tr I mean, they're brand new. That's not to say that there aren't some really good investors in that group. I'm, there of course are. But, you know, a lot of people are just new to the markets and really just like speculating and not really having a strategy. So, you know, for firms or good traders on the other side of that, you know, some of those things, maybe that could be um, taken advantage of to some extent. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that's, I mean, that's true in, in that general principle is that uh, there's always a majority of traders who are unskilled and are going to be net losers. And. Uh, insofar as you get in zero sum markets like, uh, you know, currencies and, uh, you know, futures, uh, in general, uh, that's true. Stock market, I, I guess it may be true to some extent, although in the stock market, you're dealing with almost everybody's on the same side, you know, but in terms of how it affects the moves in the market, that's, that's true as well, I guess. So the fact that most traders are on the large majority unskilled makes it possible always for some small minority to see. I think that's a valid argument and it probably remains true despite the, the computerization and more expertise in the market at the same time. Also markets are bigger, so it's more expertise as bigger markets. Where do you fall on the Robin Hood side of things? Do you view it as, you know, it's giving these new young investors exposure to the market so that's a good thing? Or do you kind of view it like, you know, it's making investing too speculative. You know, it's about that the, they've removed it now, I think, but you know, when you used to make a trade, the confetti would come down in the app. And so, you know, they were obviously encouraging or gamifying, um, trading, if you will, do you, where do you just fall generally on? Yeah, I, I think that the, that group will, will like most cake, you know, just more conventional type traders, uh, you know, the majority, I think will end up, you know, losing or at least underperforming, uh, because that's just the way human nature goes. And, uh, and, you know, and it's certainly true, uh, we kill the types of trades, so, you know, the man, man, type trades where we've got these, you know, just crazy, uh, crazy moves based upon just a lot of people saying they're buying the stock and that, that type of, um, mm. you know, that, that web-based uh, trading where people initially make a lot of money and, but ultimately, uh, and, and it's going through a lot of cryptocurrencies as well, you know, where it, like we've seen a million times before you get these tremendous up moves and then something like a Dogecoin, which it starts as a joke and, you know, it goes way up and, uh, and goes all the way down. So I think in most cases, people will end up losing or at least underperforming. So I think. It's negative in that sense, although making it easier to trade, I mean, look, so there are people who eventually will do it right and, and giving them an opportunity to 
to do it, you know, get into the markets easily and for small amounts of money. I mean, that's a good thing. So it's a mixed, yeah. it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Yep. That's fair. Um, to wrap it up, we usually have a standard closing question, which is, um, you know, we like to ask our guests if they could teach one lesson or impart one piece of wisdom for your average investor, what would that be? But I, what we thought we would do is kind of spin this a little bit. And what I wanted you to, um, uh, do, or what I want to ask you is I want to list some of these great investors you've, and great traders you've, you've spoken with, and maybe if you could remember or think back to the greatest lesson you learned from each of them. So some of these are going to go back to the original, but there's, there's just five or six of them here. So we'll kind of do this quick. So, uh, starting with Paul Tudor Jones. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I believe, but let's say I'll take the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, Paul basically believes that you should look at your portfolio. Like you just put everything on that day. You know, it, you know, it's don't get too complacent because, oh, I've got this position and I'm, I'm well ahead. I don't have to worry about, it. you know, what's that thing. Question is. If you just put this position on it today, would you be comfortable with it? Or would you be comfortable with, with it where your risk point is, you know? So having that mentality of not getting complacent, uh, and viewing every position, not how is it since you put it on, but how is it, how does it look today? You know, would I want this position at this price with my risk point today? So that's what I, I would say is, you know, one main lesson I can remember from, from Paul Tudor Jones. Joel Greenblatt. Oh, don't, you know, I, we actually, the first, I, maybe the first thing I think of, because I mentioned it before is don't swing at every pitch. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, just worth the right, but, but also because you guys are value investing, so let's go here. Um, he, uh, he had this, I asked that it was interesting. He developed this methodology and it kind of put the markets based on a value approach into tells for the most attractive to the least attractive. And, um, and, you know, told me how effective it was that, that it actually, you know, that when he tried it, that, that they came out exactly to say this out water or whatever. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, I said, uh, I understand why you invest in the top decile. Well, wouldn't it be better to invest in the top decile and sell the lowest decile and then have a, you know, balanced, you know, a neutral market in your portfolio, then you get even better return risk, would you? And he said, it's a great idea, except you would go broke, you would go broke doing that. And his point was that there are years where it's exactly reverse. Your, your lowest decile, like 99, your lowest decile goes extremely well in your top decile. So it's not like they hedge each other. It's like you, you've actually have a, you have a, like a, a leverage bet and, and, uh, you can get wiped out where normally you wouldn't. So that, but he said, there's, well, he invalued us. They said, get this right. He said, there's. There's three things uh, about value, uh, value investing. I want to get this right. Uh, he said value investing works. That's rule number one. Rule number two is value investing doesn't work all the time. Mm -hmm. And rule number three is rule number two is while rule number one works. <laughs> right. well, that's mm -hmm. what I remember. Greenblatt can uh, kind of capture those the essence of of those things very well. Um, what about Steve Steve Cohen? Yeah, Steve Cohen, yeah. So, yeah, so Steve Cohen, I uh, talked, talking about trading losses. I said, you know, well, you know, about how do you get out? I said, well, what do you do when there's a position you have all on it? You just, 
undecided. You're not sure if it's just a short-term move against you or you're wrong. And he says, if he's ever in a situation where he's not sure, first thing he does is cut him in half. And if he's still unsure a while later, he cuts it in half again. He says, you know what? Before too long, you don't have a problem anymore. And, and it's a great piece of advice. It really is stupendous piece of advice in my opinion, because a lot of people become frozen. They can't decide, you know, Hey, I get out here. I'm going to sell right at the bottom and then the market's going to reverse and it, or I hold on it's just going to keep on going. And they, they think like there's just a choice of holding everything or selling everything. And they have a problem realizing that you, you have a continuum of choices. You could hold anything between zero and hundred percent. You don't have to have a zero hundred and the decision between zero and hundred is very difficult. But so one thing to that piece of advice where you're uncertain, you know, get out of some, get out of something, just, just get out of something and, and, uh, and then reevaluate it. So that's a, that's a, as, as a good general principle is not to do everything at one time, you know, uh, to, and it works for scaling into positions. Scaling out of positions when you're undecided, um, it's breaking, breaking trades into components as opposed to just doing everything hundred percent one way or the other. That's a really critical piece of advice. Michael Steinhardt. I would go variant perception. So, which I think is the word that if I remember correctly, it was the term he used to, he's always looking for a situation where he saw something that was different with the way the conventional interpretation. So he says his big trades always came where he was able to see something and for well-defined reasons where he thought the general view was wrong for this reason. He had a varied perception and being able to identify those are where his big trades were. It's great that you remember all this. Cause you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be, you talk to so many people. You have to think of it a bit because, you know, this is, you know, quite a number of people, you know, more than three decades since that book was written. Who was the one person you interviewed that it was just like, I want to go out and get a beer with this guy. I want to go out and this is like, cool guy, like, let's go hang out. I mean, if you could, if you could choose someone kind of putting you on the spot here, I'm not saying who you don't like, I'm saying who was the most likable from your perspective that it was just, this is just a great person. I mean, who, who would you say of all the people you interviewed? There are a number of people I, you know, there are quite a few people like that yeah. I could say would fall that category. Um, so, you know, look, look, it's kind of unfair. Like Peter Brandt was his latest book, but he's a friend. So I, I can't even give an objective opinion. I kind of knew him before and yeah, he's exactly the type of guy I like to hang out with. By the way, we're politically completely opposite polls. <laughs> yeah, we're just saying, but it's interesting. I say that because in today's world, People kind of divide politically and just think here's a guy I consider a good friend, and, and it's mutual, by the way. Um, and yet our political views are very different. But so, but he's in, he's somebody. Uh, there, but like Ed Thorpe, who I only you know I never met. I, I went out. I went out to California, spent two days there. Uh, but I found it just like a kind of very interesting and exceedingly smart. Very. What I really liked about him was that he. Somebody very brilliant, but yet doesn't, doesn't, doesn't lord it. <laughs> you, know, you, can, you know, he doesn't put the hairs on and, you know, he's still down to earth. Uh, just a really, you know, a nice guy, you know, very sharing his thoughts and stuff. 
Um, just a, there was a one John Bender who who died a number of years ago, um, who um, who I had a bit of a personal relationship. But not that I not that I saw him regularly or anything. Uh, we just communicated, but he had invited me. He had gone up to Costa Rica to uh, to his 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 calls. This his calls became to take his market winnings and buy up rainforest in Costa Rica to preserve it from from development. And uh, he was, you know, building his own spectacular house in the rainforest, whatever. But he invited me to come out by my uh, middle child. My uh, my son was graduating from high school. Went to a some trip. Uh, we, you know, he had since he invited me. I I asked my son if he wanted to do that. So we went out to Costa Rica, Costa Rica rainforest, and then so it's been so you know so time with him. So he became a friend in that way. Uh, sadly, he's not with us anymore. But there were there. Quite a number, like I say, they're not the only ones. And Mike Marcus was a friend, although very on the shy side. So, uh, uh, not the, not the beer type person, really, so to speak. But, uh, uh, you know, that great. Off the top of my head, those are a few. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's good stuff. Um, so if people want to learn more about you, um, where can they go to find out more? Okay, so uh, you know, just website wise, uh, first of all, is I have a, you mentioned the company Missouri Front Cedar, uh, which is just one word fund cedar, uh, like a company that seeds funds, all dot com. So that's basically that's a, that company. We we look for like you said, we look for exceptional trainers. We actually. Uh, there's an event, there's actually two sides. There's the technology side of the company, which provides a platform for traders where they can link their accounts to the platform, make it then generate all sorts of, you know, graphs on their equity and do technical analysis on their equity curve and stuff like that. All, all sorts of performance stats. And that's all free. That's because that we use that as a lure to just find traders. And then the investment side of the company takes traders we can find and um, link them up to investments that we're actually scheduled to launch our first fund of traders this, this coming May. So for the traders who think they've got what it takes, they think they are return risk and are undiscovered, want the opportunity to manage money, uh, linking, linking their accounts to that site that their broker is not linkable. We have a template to, they can upload their, their data. It's just your own edification to see how you stack up. Um, but also for the potential opportunity to be discovered. So I'd mention that. I have my own website that I really don't do much, you know, with that, I mean, it's there. Mm. It has, uh, you know, it has some stuff on it. It certainly has links to all the books and all of that. Uh, it has, but I don't update it regularly. And, uh, uh, there are some articles on there that I've written and links stuff and things. So Jack, which is just jackschwager.com. Great. We'll put links to both those, uh, sites in the show notes so people can check it out. And Jack, we just want to thank you for spending so much time with us today uh, Friday before Easter, but we're really happy that you were able to come on. I think that our, our listeners will get a lot out of this. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of excess returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practical quant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.